Hey, I hope you all had an exceptional holiday season this past few weeks. And so 2024 begins. Happy New Year and all that jazz. Hey, let's jump straight into the Far Middle Weekly installment with our sports dedication. And once again, we're looking for a figure who achieved not just on the playing field or in the arena, but also in life beyond the game. A sports dedication who's riddled with history and tying into the connections for the week so that it serves as something of interest for constant listener sports fans and non-sports fans alike. Now, this episode's dedication goes to an individual that somehow amazingly, maybe also negligently on my part, evaded a dedication over the past, what, 135 plus episodes. And this subject is one of the greatest players in the history of baseball, but I love him most for his roots, where he was from. He grew up and he lived his adult life in Carnegie, Pennsylvania, which is a part of the Pittsburgh area that I am also from and that is 10 minutes from where I sit right now. Our dedication story, it is the story of Western PA. And the dedication is to the one and only Hannes Wagner. Now, look, we could spend our entire 30 minutes this episode talking about the baseball exploits of the man. Many consider him the greatest shortstop in the history of baseball. And that's with all due respect to the Wizard of Oz and Iron Man Cal and Jeter. Wagner won his eighth and final batting title in 1911. That's a National League record that remains unbroken to this day, and it was matched only once in the 1990s by the great Tony Gwynn. And Wagner also led the league in slugging six times and stolen bases five times. But this is the far middle, you know, not some run-of-the-mill sports blog. So let's focus on a few historical facts about Hannes Wagner, that play right into our themes of this podcasting journey. Did you know the following about Hannes Wagner? First, Hannes Wagner might be the greatest player in the history of the game, not just at shortstop. A lot of baseball historians and statisticians, including Bill James, they say he's up there with and only potentially bested by Babe Ruth. Ty Cobb himself called Wagner, quote, maybe the greatest star ever to take the diamond, end quote. And Wagner's 1908 season might be the single best season of anybody in the history of the game. Here's a second interesting sort of fact about Hannes Wagner. He had a nickname, and many of you may know it, the Flying Dutchman, which was attributed to his superb speed and German heritage. But I bet none of you may know what the nickname was in reference to beyond baseball, unless, that is, you are an opera fan. This nickname, the Flying Dutchman, was a nod to the popular German folktale made into a famous opera by the German composer Richard Wagner, who obviously shared a last name with Hannes. And Wagner, the composer, who interestingly was Hitler's favorite musical composer, was also unfortunately an anti-Semite and railed against Jewish influence in German art. Now, the Flying Dutchman folktale is about a sea captain who once found himself struggling to round the Cape of Good Hope during a ferocious storm, and he swore that he would succeed even if he had to sail until Judgment Day. But the devil, he was listening, and the devil heard that oath, so he took him up on it, and the Dutchman was condemned to stay at sea forever. His only hope for salvation was to be able to find a woman who loved him enough to declare herself faithful to the Dutchman for life, no matter what. And to top it off, he could only stop sailing once every seven years to go ashore and search for that one true love. Here's a, a third interesting historical note about Hannes Wagner. He grew up hard, as did most baseball players of his era. Wagner was one of nine kids growing up in western Pennsylvania. 
He dropped out of school at age 12 to help his father and brothers in the coal mines. Hey, that was the life in the late 1800s and early 1900s in America, especially for the immigrant classes. How about a fourth item of interest? And a lot of you may be more familiar with this one when it comes to Hannes Wagner, especially those of you who follow art and collectibles. The T206 Hannes Wagner baseball card. It's one of the rarest and most expensive baseball cards in the world. Only 57 copies are known to exist. And the production of the Wagner card was maybe as high as 200 cards, as small or as few as 57, due to a likely dispute over compensation between Hannes Wagner and the tobacco company that issued the baseball card. So only less than 200, let's say, were distributed to the public as compared to the potentially tens of thousands of T206 cards for any other player. And the uh, last price that I saw for the Wagner T206, I checked this before um, sort of recording this episode of The Far Middle, was about a year ago, and it sold for $7.25 million. Nice. And then finally, Wagner was in that first induction class into the Baseball Hall of Fame, 1936. Now, there were five names in that class, one, of course, being Wagner. Do you know the others? Well, you got Babe Ruth, of course, and Ty Cobb, and Walter Johnson, and Cy Young? Nope, Cy Young didn't make the cut, if you can believe that. Instead, Christy Mathewson did. You don't get more Appalachia, more Western Pennsylvania, or more Pittsburgh than Hannes Wagner, and you don't get more scrappy doer and achiever than the Flying Dutchman, And therein lies the reasons for our dedication for Far Middle, episode 137. All right, onward with the Far Middle, like the Flying Dutchman. Jumping into our first connection, going from Hannes Wagner and his status as native of Western Pennsylvania to my Western Pennsylvania accent. That's right, there's a connection for you. More than one constant listener of the Far Middle who doesn't hail from Western PA has told me that they love the podcast and they know that I love Western Pennsylvania, but they then ask where I'm from originally because they think my accent at times is a bit strange, sort of Southern, but not Southern. Well, it's from Western Pennsylvania and Northern Appalachia in general, whether it's Eastern Ohio or West Virginia or Western PA. And most beyond the region, they call it Pittsburghese. We call it English within the region and we think it sounds completely normal. And now I do my best to mask that accent in these broadcasts, and I'm probably, I don't know, 95 plus percent successful. But every once in a while, it does sneak through, along with those special pronunciations that accompany the accent. So you'll hear us say from time to time, "cotch" instead of couch, and crick instead of creek. And if you want a tutorial on what Pittsburghy sounds like, that is also a bit of comedy relief, check out the Pittsburgh Dad on YouTube. Just type in Pittsburgh dad. And that character has perfected the accent for the rest of you not from this region. And yes, I assure you, it is English. It's just not the king's English. But considering who the king is these days in the UK, that might not be a bad thing. Let's jump to the next topic, making a connection, let's say from Western Pennsylvania accents to air quality in Western Pennsylvania. So what's the air like for people breathing it here that then speak the way that they do? Well, if you listen to much of the media and environmental movement, the answer you get is that Pittsburgh's and Western Pennsylvania's air quality, they're horrible and they're harmful to health. 
If you listen to supposed objective experts like the American Lung Association, you hear the region in western Pennsylvania receives an air quality grade of an F and that it's worse than the air quality in other cities and urban areas of the nation. But the beauty of air quality is that it can be measured and it can be assessed using data, not using ideology or biased opinion to drive a favored agenda. And the entity known as Pittsburgh Works Together, which is a Western PA institution that's focused on building a regional economy that works for everybody, Pittsburgh Works Together provided a study on regional air quality that did just that, looked at the objective data. And the results were both interesting and fascinating when compared to the image and the optics of others. But first, some background on Pittsburgh Works Together. PWT, as it's known by acronym, it was created after meetings of building trade union leaders and officials from the manufacturing and steel and energy sectors came together, and the organization banded together to commit themselves to working with leaders of the Western Pennsylvania region and tomorrow's industries to keep the focus on the realization that without everybody, there is no new Pittsburgh or new economy or brighter tomorrow. I love the organization. I work with it quite closely, and it's a collection of regional doers. Let me assure you of that. These are people and building trades and companies that build stuff that allow society and economy to function. It's sort of the coalition of the doers, as I see it. And every region should have something akin to Pittsburgh Works Together. And if it does, if that region does have something like it, that region should consider itself lucky. Now, the website for PWT is pghworks.com. And what we'll be discussing in this connection can be found in its entirety on that website. Again, pghworks.com. Okay, so a few years ago, Pittsburgh Works Together, they started to think seriously about why all one hears about Western Pennsylvania when it comes to air quality is that it is horrible and that industry and manufacturing and energy that are blame and we should shut them down. Now, typically, this demagoguery comes from the elite and environmental movement across government and academia and media, usually tied to those buzz terms that sound good to say, but that in reality are quite hollow without a core economy. You know these buzzwords, the new economy, the knowledge economy, the energy transition, so on. So PWT, they started to assess and summarize and then report on air quality using not opinion and speculation, but instead using data and comparing the objective data here in Western PA to similar objective data elsewhere across the United States. And PWT calls this report Clearing the Air. So Pittsburgh Works Together first issued Clearing the Air, the first report version 1.0 a few years back, and it used EPA data and research by others to dispel the myth that the air in the Pittsburgh region is among the worst in the country. That initial report found that the Pittsburgh region's air quality is fairly typical, of that found in big city regions around the country. And Western PA air quality might be better than some other urban regions, and it might be a bit worse than others, but certainly not an outlier and definitely not in the negative direction of outlier. The most recent clearing the air report is version 4.0, which is again available in its entirety online at pghworks.com. And the 4.0 version of the report uses 2022 EPA data to continue the monitoring and assessment of the region's air quality, which continues to improve year after year. And if you still think that Pittsburgh and the Western PA region have bad air, you better stay away from Seattle and Austin and San Diego, because the air quality at all of those places is worse. 
Other findings in this report include sort of the assessment that Western PA's average level of microscopic soot, which is known as and is measured by PM 2.5, it continues to decline. That's good news. And the PM 2.5 level at a key air monitor location in the area, which is used to measure the Greater Pittsburgh Area's compliance with the Clean Air Act, it's met EPA standards for years. And it declined, by the way, 7% in 2022 compared to 2021, and it's dropped over 23% over the past decade. Yeah, the bottom line on Pittsburgh area air quality is that the region has been in compliance with all EPA standards for two consecutive years running, and that's for the first time ever. That's great news, right? And it gets even better when you look at the data objectively. The Pittsburgh region is one of the cleanest major metro areas for ozone, which can cause lung irritation and aggravate asthma. The region has less ozone than 74% of the 50 largest metropolitan regions in the country. That's obviously where you want to be. But that's not the storyline that's being fabricated out there by academia and the media and elite circles. The opposite is being fabricated, that our air quality in the Pittsburgh area is poor or that it's horrible. The biggest example and the best illustration of a bad actor is, believe it or not, the American Lung Association, which continues to mislead the public on the region's air quality, relying on limited data and making up its own criteria for its annual assessment. I'll give you an example. The Lung Association has continued to grade the 12-county Pittsburgh region in F as a grade for peak PM 2.5 levels even though the region has met EPA standards since 2018. And data in the Lung Association's own report shows that many of the counties in the region are among the cleanest in the entire country for that pollutant. So what gives? And this isn't to say that we should be content here in the Steel City. Air quality can and should get better. And there's still a lot of further work that can be done to improve air quality in the region. And there may be communities where the air quality tends to be worse than the region's typical conditions. But we need to act and set policies and establish goals that are based on facts, not fear or feelings. Misunderstanding the nature of the region's air quality, that can lead people to believe that they live in a uniquely bad community and that they're putting their health at risk unnecessarily. And it can send an inaccurate message to people and companies considering living or investing in the region. And mischaracterizing the problem puts pressure on regulators and public officials to solve problems that some people imagine exist rather than problems that actually do exist. Now, all these themes, I think you can sense they fall right into the power alley of the far middle, which is why I wanted to raise it to you constant listeners. So again, check out pghworks.com. You'll be glad that you did, and you'll come away better informed. And whether you live in Western Pennsylvania or whether you're residing somewhere else, the issues, they're timely, and they loom large everywhere these days. How about we jump from a great region organization's objective of assessing data for the betterment of all in that region to now a national organization doing similar work? That would make for a great connection here on episode 137. The Institute for Energy Research or IER, is someone you'll want to become familiar with, especially if you are into energy and into policy. Now, their website is instituteforenergyresearch.org, all one word, and IER is a nonprofit organization that conducts intensive research and analysis on the functions in the operations and the government regulation of global energy markets. And IER maintains that freely functioning energy markets 
provide the most efficient and effective solutions to today's global energy and environmental challenges. And as such, they're critical to the well-being of individuals and society. Amen to that, I say. For many years, there's been a political movement, and perhaps more of an ideological movement that's bordering on religion, centered in North America and Europe, that is seeking to halt oil and natural gas production in those regions. Keep it in the ground, ban fracking, code red, you know them all well by now. And proponents claim this effort is justified in the name of protecting the environment and saving the earth from climate change. But this political movement, it's done little to eliminate the need for those products in developed countries. Nearly every facet of modern developed economies requires petroleum products and natural gas to function and provide the comfortable lifestyles that citizens of developed countries have come to expect. Now, these resources, they're necessary for agriculture and heavy industry and transportation by all modes, whether it's road, rail, air, or ship, in a great number of the products that we take for granted. And they're ingrained in almost everything. Thus, efforts to reduce or eliminate oil and natural gas production in developed countries like the United States, it's going to simply shift production to other countries in order to meet ongoing global demand. The great irony is that this political movement, which purports to be about protecting the environment, it results in oil and natural gas production moving from countries with the highest environmental standards, like the United States, to countries with lower or even functionally zero environmental standards. And the contradictions of this approach, they're most apparent in the case of the United States, which of course is the largest producer of both oil and natural gas in the world. Reductions or limitations on domestic oil production here, they have to be made up elsewhere in the remaining major oil producing countries, which have far lower environmental standards than the United States. And that, constant listeners, that is where the IER and its research captured in the report titled the Environmental Quality Index comes into play. You see, the IER sought to objectively quantify that environmental gap between how natural gas, let's say, is manufactured under U.S. standards versus other nation standards by creating an environmental quality score weighted by production for oil and natural gas production in countries around the world using the well-known Environmental Performance Index, or EPI, which was produced by none other than Yale University. So the higher the EPI score, the better, or the higher the environmental standards associated with the manufacturing of the oil or the natural gas. What did the results show when one tabulates the data? Well, the results show that purely as a matter of environmental protection, replacing American domestic production of oil or natural gas with foreign supplies would be an overwhelmingly negative trade-off for the planet, for Code Red, and for the environment. And there's four major points highlighted by the IER analysis. The first one, uh, for the 20 largest oil-producing countries outside the United States, the average EPI environmental score weighted by liquids fuels production is 39. So outside the U.S., the top 20 scores an average of 39. And again, remember, higher is better. When compared to the United States EPI score, it's over 51. So that means the average barrel of non-American petroleum is produced in a country with an environmental score that is over 23% lower than that of the United States. Here's the second conclusion or takeaway. For the 20 largest non-American natural gas producers, so now we're shifting to natural gas, the average EPI environmental score weighted by production again is just under 39, 38.6. 
Compare that to over 51 of the EPI score for America, which means the average unit of natural gas, if produced in a country not the United States, has an environmental score that is over 24% lower than that of the United States. And then number three conclusion, the U.S., which is, again, the world's largest producer of both oil and natural gas, is only outranked on environmental quality by three of the top 20 oil producers and three of the top natural gas producers. And none of those countries produce even one quarter of the volumes of oil or natural gas coming from America. So indeed, all oil production from countries scoring higher on environmental quality amounts to only 36% of U.S. production, just over a third. And that from the natural gas producing countries, it's only a third of U.S. production. So the sheer size of America's domestic production of oil and natural gas combined with its excellent environmental standards, it means that U.S. production disproportionately reduces the environmental harm of oil and natural gas production on a global scale. That's a huge conclusion and takeaway. And then fourth and last, the United States, when you look at its production of crude oil and natural gas, it's increased over the last 40 years, of course, while at the same time, pollution and emissions have steadily declined across those sources. So contrary to popular media characterizations, wealth created by energy development in free economies, it enhances environmental performance while making people's lives better. And no one, nobody does it better and at larger scale than the U.S. of A. Those are the data and them are the facts. Awesome. And on to our next connection, staying on that theme of data and numbers, not in the world of energy production or with regional air quality, but this time in the arena of U.S. federal government finances. Many, and I mean many of you, the prior year or so have commented to me about our talks and connections on the state of the federal debt and deficit. And some of you are asking to help put the sheer magnitude of the numbers and math in perspective. You know, when you're talking trillions or tens of trillions of dollars, many people start to lose perspective and scale. So I think I found a way to create that perspective on federal finances that serves as a cool and both a scary discussion item for the far middle. So think of the United States federal government as a household like yours. The federal government takes in $4.4 trillion a year in income taxes and payroll taxes and excise taxes and so on. And the federal government spends $6.1 trillion a year. That means the federal government racks up a deficit of $1.7 trillion a year. And the federal debt in total, that's sitting at just under $34 trillion. Now, we've discussed all these numbers in the past. And by the way, I pulled them from the usdebtclock.org website, uh, which updates all of them real time. So check out that website. It's an awesome resource, usdebtclock.org. But let's put this in perspective for everyone. We'll do two things to set it up in the proper framing. First, shift from thinking of this as the federal government, an inanimate thing, to, again, a household next door to you, your neighbor. Second, let's remove eight zeros from all those numbers. So instead of trillions of dollars, we'll be converting to thousands of dollars to help put the scale in perspective, but by still retaining the relative proportionality of each number. Okay, so if we do those two things, Here's what the finances would look like for the next door neighbor of yours. Their annual income would be $44,000. The 
the money spent by the household that year would be $61,000, which means the difference between the two, or $17,000, had to be put on the credit card and added to that credit card's balance that's owed. And that credit card already had $340,000 on it as a balance. So think about that household. It's spending $17,000 more than it takes in. Is that sustainable when it already has $340,000 on the credit card? Can the household ever expect to pay off the $340,000 credit card balance without drastically cutting its spending? Now, that household is our federal government. It spends way, way more than it takes in every single year, much more than you or your neighbor would be able to do. And it keeps outspending by more and more each year. Worse yet, the federal government has an insurmountable outstanding loan balance on its credit card, whereby even if it were to drastically cut spending to match incoming revenue, it would never be able to pay down or pay off its debt. Now, would such a situation be sustainable for a household like yours or mine? Heck no, of course. It's not plausible, and it results in only one outcome, which is default. So how is doing the same thing sustainable for the federal government? Because it controls the money presses? But at some point, even that doesn't matter, particularly if the credibility and the confidence that others place in the money printed from that press starts to falter. So make no mistake about it, if this were anything other than the federal government, say a household or a business or an organization, the end would have come crashing down long ago. So why is it all okay and going to continue to be okay when it comes to the federal government? Let me know when you've got a rational answer to that one. That's a strong start with the far middle to kick off 2024. Yeah, looking back, we hit on a series of connections contrasting facts and data with the fantasy and the fiction, with regional air quality, global energy manufacturing, and the federal government's finances. And we tied all three of those discussions to awesome websites that are great resources. Let's make our final connection to that world of fantasy and fiction I just spoke about. When it's good, uh, when it's a good thing and celebrating the birthday of one of the best who ever was when it comes to penning stories, epic ones in that genre. Happy birthday this January 3rd to British author J.R.R. Tolkien. Born in 1892, The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy of books, they're some of the greatest works of fiction in history. I read them in my early teen years and I fell in love with them. Middle Earth and its storylines in those books, It seems to follow real life more and more these days as our world becomes increasingly unhinged. The JRR stands for John Ronald Rule, by the way, and he was a devout Catholic, a close friend of contemporary author C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, one of which is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In Tolkien's stories, they stood for a lot more than just fantasy entertainment. There were lots of ideological messaging going on in them with defending individual freedom and having good stand up to evil. He got much of his inspiration on those themes from being on the front lines in World War I and at the Battle of the Somme, and he served as a codebreaker in World War II. The Lord of the Rings were first published in the 1950s. The rest, of course, is history. And by the way, a little known fact for fans of Tolkien, his manuscripts for The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, they were acquired by Marquette University before his death. Tolkien masterpiece manuscripts sitting in Milwaukee. Who would have thunk it? 
We leave episode 137 of the far middle with a discussion of Middle Earth. Pretty cool. Let's do all this again in a week, shall we? Bye for now.